Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and history. Today's topic is Who Killed JFK? Part One. Our speaker is Gerald Posner, who is the author of the book Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK Assassination. Gerald spent years researching this book and interviewed all the major players in this murder. This year is the 60th anniversary of the assassination, and I want to find out who killed JFK and if there was a conspiracy. Buckle up. Gerald, please begin with your opening six-minute remarks. Why did Lee Harvey Oswald kill Jack Kennedy? He killed him because he was a sociopathic loser in life, a 24-year-old kid who was looking for his place in the history books. In November of 1963, when he was working at the Texas School Book Depository, he learned by reading the paper that the president's motorcade was going to come directly in front of the building where he worked. It was history on a silver platter. He couldn't pass it up. He took advantage of it, and that's why he ends up in the sniper's nest on that day shooting at JFK. So why couldn't Oswald be part of a conspiracy? You have to know Oswald to understand how unstable he was, how unusual. This is a person who no group of conspirators, the mafia, the CIA, the Cubans, whoever they were, could have trusted because he wasn't somebody who was reliable. He was somebody who had already been judged by the KGB and others when he had defected to the Soviet Union as mentally unstable. He had been judged by a psychiatrist when he was a teenager and had been sent there from troubles from school as having all types of sociopathic aggressive disorders that made him on the borderline personality. And when you realize that Oswald is somebody who's beating his wife on the one hand, he's handing out leaflets to try to join the revolution to go to Cuba. He doesn't know what he wants to do in his life, except he wants to make a mark. Conspirators would stay 20 miles away from him because they know that somebody like Oswald's the first person who's not only going to tell others, but he's going to blow up the entire conspiracy once he's caught. So they couldn't rely on him. Why do people believe that there is a conspiracy with the JFK assassination? People believe there's a conspiracy because they want to. It makes them feel better about Kennedy's death. Kennedy presented so much opportunity for the future. This young, charismatic president, you know, the best and the brightest, Camelot, all of that, we hear it. True, after the Eisenhower years, Kennedy offered this potential for the future, and then it ends on this day abruptly in Dallas. If some dark cabal had to get together to kill Kennedy because he was going to rip down the CIA or pull us out of Vietnam or whatever the hell it was, that makes you feel as though there's some meaning to his death. These dark forces had to stop him. But if it's just this schnook, if it's just Oswald, it's just this kid who's decided for whatever reasons to end the president's life and he pulls it off, it's so unsatisfying. It's also the chaos theory. Life is full of chaos. Things happen. Events take place that we have no control over. It makes people feel very unstable about a lot of things. They want it to be a conspiracy. I asked my mom if she believed in a conspiracy And she said, definitely, because no 24-year-old can kill the most powerful person in the world. What should I tell her? History has taught us that it's always some young loser in life that changes the course of history. Ask the Europeans who fought an entire the Great War over the death of the Archduke by somebody. We've seen Bobby Kennedy cut down by a young Palestinian assassin who was mad over his Middle East policy. We saw Martin Luther King 
killed by a guy who came from a dirt poor family and was looking for a payday of $50,000 in James Earl Ray. These are the people who commit the assassinations. We're able to block the groups that get together and conspire to pull off a coup or kill someone because there's an informant inside the Nazis or inside the Communist Party. It's the loners. It's the people acting on their own. It's the Tim McVeigh's who are able to plant a bomb at a federal building in Oklahoma City and get away with it because they're on nobody's radar. It's the Oswalds of the world living in their own demonic haze who get there and change history forever. You've spent years investigating Lee Harvey Oswald. Tell us why you think that he is a sociopath. Oswald comes from a dysfunctional family with a capital D. No father. He has a mother who's overbearing, who overprotects him. He's sent to see a psychiatrist when he's just turning 13 years old because we laugh at this. He's a truant from school. And the psychiatrist, this guy Hard Talks, remembers him years later before the Warren Commission, a decade later, very vividly. And why? He said, because I remember this kid that showed up on a mild charge of truancy and seemed to be so mentally disturbed on so many levels. The recommendation that he should see regular counseling and go to see a psychiatrist from the get-go. And what does his mother do? Oswald's mother takes him back to Texas, moves out of New York. Oswald goes into the Marines because his brother had, even though he's not crazy about the U.S. Marine Corps, it's going to straighten him out. He hated it. They thought he was gay. They threw him in the shower. They called him Mrs. Oswald. So now he decides he's going to change his life and he's going to go to Russia. It's going to defect in the middle of the Cold War and show up and say, I'm an ex-Marine, and the Russians are going to say, you're heroic. And instead, they do a psychological test on him. They tell him to get lost. They don't want him there. He tries to kill himself, and they move him out to the provincial capital of Minsk, and he hates the Russians after a while. So what does he do? He decides after meeting a Russian bride, he's going to come back to the U.S. He comes back to the America, which he can't stand, and he can't hold a job. So then he decides, I'm going to commit revolution. I'll be a revolutionary. I'm going to kill this retired army general that's going to run for the governorship of Texas. He's going to change history. He tries to shoot him. The bullets deflect on the window pane. He misses him. He's failed again. So he's had it. Now Oswald's going to commit himself to the real revolution, which is in Havana. Fidel Castro's leading it. He goes to New Orleans in the summer of 63, and he forms his own organization for Castro and prints hundreds of leaflets to hand out so people can join his new group. You know how many volunteers he gets? Zero. Fails again. So he's had it. So now he's going to go to Havana. He goes down to Mexico City to get a visa, and the Cuban and Soviet missions reject him three times. And he comes back to Dallas Six and a half weeks before the assassination, he can't find a job. His life is spelled out of control. His wife is living separately from him. He's had a very tumultuous, abusive relationship with her. And he lands a job through a friend of his wife at the Texas School Book Depository. He's only a few weeks from entering the history books. Tell us about Oswald's decision to leave the United States and emigrate to the Soviet Union. Oswald was a contrarian. He disliked his life growing up with his mother in the U.S. He disliked the Marine Corps after he was in it. So he viewed that as a problem with America, not with him. He also did enough of his own political studies. He self-taught, thought he was brighter than he was, subscribed to a Russian language newspaper when he was in the Marine Corps. 
You would think in the middle of the Cold War, he subscribed to a Russian language newspaper. They must have had him under a security watch. No, because he was so open about it. They just thought he was odd. They called him Oswaldovich. They thought that he was just a strange guy. And he liked that. So his appeal was that there was a time he was enamored with communism. And there's nothing better than moving to a strictly authoritarian communist country. Marx and Engels had a theory that could work in practice. And he was disabused of that notion very quickly while he was in the Soviet Union. I had a book club years ago with Jack Matlock, who was the former U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union during the Reagan administration. He wrote a book entitled Reagan and Gorbachev. That's a great read. And he spoke to my group. Matlock got a PhD in Russian studies and joined the U.S. State Department and was placed in Moscow in the early 1960s. I asked Matlock if by chance he ever met Lee Harvey Oswald. He said, how did you know? I didn't know. He told me that Oswald came to the U.S. Embassy and that his assistant said there's a total nut job in the conference room who wants to give up his American citizenship, which was highly unusual. Matlock said he met with him and informed him that there was a 24-hour cooling-off period before giving up U.S. citizenship, and Oswald did not return. Instead, Oswald moved to Minsk to work in a factory where he met his future wife, Marina. What happened between Oswald and Marina? There's a real relationship there. There's no question. And although some of his fellow Marines had thought that Oswald was gay and it teased him for that. There's no evidence of that. There's just what I call that male brutality at 19 years old in the Marine Corps in which they use that as an insult. So I never found any evidence that Oswald was in fact hiding and repressing. He wasn't in the closet and marrying Marina as a cover. They had a real marriage. And how do I know that? Because these Soviets were monitoring their apartment constantly with surveillance equipment. They were worried for a while that Oswald could be an American plant. It wasn't possible they could really be in love with the Soviet Union. Very few people came over and were. So they watched them for a while. She was enamored with an American who was clearly the star of the factory that he worked at because he was an American who spoke broken Russian. When he decided to come back to the U.S., she thought that that would be a great idea. They had washing machines in America. They didn't have them in Russia. In the movie, The Lives of Others, it's a story set in East Germany about the Stasi who listened to couples in their own bedrooms to see if they would disclose information. Are you suggesting that the Soviets or the KGB put microphones in Oswald's bedroom? Yes, I know from the Minsk office of the KGB that they heard them at work. Wow, that's good intelligence. Yeah, I know this in terms of intelligence from the Cold War on both sides. Bedrooms were places you wanted listing equipment because it was possible that you might pick up on somebody's hidden gay life. And that was always good for espionage because you could use it as blackmail against them. As I mentioned before, Jack Matlock worked in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in the early 60s. And his assistant told him that that crazy guy Oswald is back again, now with his new wife, Marina, who wants a visa to the U.S. Matlock asked to meet with her alone, and Oswald demands to translate for her in the visa interview. And Matlock tells Oswald that he is fluent in Russian and that Oswald speaks pidgin Russian. 
Matlock asks Marina if she has ever been a member of the Communist Party. She says yes. Matlock is surprised because that is grounds to reject the visa. And whenever a suspected KGB agent requests a visa, they always deny party membership. Matlock asks her, in what way is she a member? Marina says that she participates in the Communist Party Volleyball League. So Matlock gives her the U.S. visa and the Oswalds move to Dallas. What happened? She's 19 at the time. She's not devious and cunning. She isn't somebody who's played her cards just right to come into the United States and take advantage of Oswald. She very much is the young girl who's sort of in love with this American and thinks there's a bigger picture waiting for her in America. And what she only discovers when they get back to America is how isolated she will be. She meets some Russian emigres in Dallas, and yes, they take her under their wing, but for the most part, she's away from family, and she's dependent totally on Lee. And one thing I know from studying Lee Harvey Oswald is he's not a good person to be dependent on because he's not reliable, but she couldn't know that until it happened. When Oswald moves to Dallas, he struggles to find and then keep a minimum wage job. He gets mad. He beats and berates his wife. He becomes mentally unhinged. Why does Marina stay with him? Part of the reason that she stays is because she doesn't know what else to do. I very much have this feeling from talking to others who have spoken to her that she felt as though there was almost a defeat to go back to Russia. That if she just packed her bags in six months and said, I'm leaving, especially once they had a daughter, that they would say, what's the matter with you? You can't make a life there. Women who are sometimes abused in relationships, have a low self-esteem and blame themselves. They think I'm responsible somehow for this having happened. You know, Lee lost a job. He was so angry and I didn't give him enough room. I was asking him, what are you going to do next? And then he got violent about this. It takes a point to get to in your life where you're able to say, no, I'm not at all to blame for this. It's completely the fault of the abuser, the person who's beating me. But at that age at 20 and 21, I don't think she was there yet. Oswald likes guns. He buys an Italian rifle from a mail-order catalog. This is a small-world story. My mother's sister's father-in-law owned the mail-order gun catalog company that sold the gun to Oswald that killed JFK. So Oswald buys the rifle. Then he decides that he wants to kill a retired U.S. general living in Dallas who's running for political office. What happened? He gets the gun early in 63, and now we're talking about him doing an assassination of Edwin Walker, this retired right-wing army general, in April of 63. He does some surveillance on Walker's home. Walker is living in a single-family home, an area that's fairly quiet. Oswald knows the bus route. He's taking some photographs. He has pictures of the car. He makes a little scrapbook out of it. The reason we know all of that is Marina discovers it after the attempted assassination and finds out that the headlines in the Dallas paper that she reads that there was an attempted assassination on this retired army general turns out to be by her husband, Lee. And he has the entire book. When he fires the shot, he's at a distance, he's behind some trees. Walker is sitting inside his study. It's very brightly lit. Oswald fires the bullet in. Oswald thinks he's hit him or killed him, fired right at the head. What he doesn't realize is you can't see from the way the window is lit. There's a very thin wood sash along the window that breaks it in four spots. 
the bullet later, we find out grooves along that wood part of the sash, just enough to deflect Mrs. Walker's head by a couple of inches and goes into the wall behind him. Walker doesn't know what happened at first. Oswald leaves, thinks he's pulled it off, finds out afterward that Walker's alive. And for Lee, this is a devastating moment because he has failed at the one thing that's the most important. It's one thing to lose a job, can't hold the job. The people who are firing him as supervisors, they aren't as smart as he is. That's what he thinks. They don't appreciate him for what he really is. So now he's going to show them all what he can accomplish, and he's failed at that. And Marina, for the first time in their relationship, stands up and says, enough. She doesn't say, I'm calling the police. She says, we're getting out of here. We're getting out of Dallas. You're not staying here. And why? Because she knows that if they stay there, he's going to try to kill Walker again. He's not going to take a failed attempt and say, okay, that's it. I'll put the rifle away. No more. He's going to go back and make sure he kills him next time. So she gets him to move to New Orleans where he had an uncle. They'll spend their summer of 63 in New Orleans where he can't shoot a walker. The people who believe in a wider conspiracy, how do they reconcile Oswald's attempted murder of General Walker? Conspiracy theorists have two views of Walker. Some think that it didn't happen at all. It was a complete setup. But Marina is the source of all of the information about the Walker assassination. Some conspiracy believers think that Marina was given a script and told, show us this scrapbook and say that your husband tried to kill this army general back in April. And Marina did that because she was afraid that she'd be sent back to Russia. She wasn't an American citizen. Well, guess what? 60 years later, she's been remarried for decades. She is an American citizen. She's well-placed here, and she hasn't changed her story. Oswald spent the summer of 63 in New Orleans trying to get people to support Free Cuba, an organization to help Castro, but does not accomplish much other than getting arrested after getting to a fight with anti-Castro followers. Oswald returns to Dallas and decides he wants to immigrate to Cuba and goes to Mexico City where there is a Cuban embassy. But his request for a visa is denied. Oswald goes home to Dallas, penniless, and is desperate to find a job. A friend of his wife tells him about an opening at the Texas School Book Depository. He gets an entry-level job where he works pulling together books in the warehouse. And then incredibly, he gets the news that JFK's motorcade's route will go directly in front of where he works. What happened? It is hard to overestimate the impact that had on 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Here's a guy who in his entire life has been dissatisfied in his own skin of who he is and has been tormented by others, fired by his bosses, he has been taunted by his fellow Marines. He was rejected by the Soviets. The Russian emigres inside of the United States don't like him. He can't succeed on anything he's done. And now, the President of the United States, he's got a chance of taking the rifle and shooting at him. I ask anyone to look at the pictures of Oswald once he's arrested. It's a different Oswald than in anything before. He's the Cheshire cat who has swallowed the canary. He has a smirk on his face. People say Oswald had a smirk. He never really had a smirk beforehand. He's pulled it off, and all those people thought he was a loser. Look at him now. So why doesn't he admit it? He yells out to the press corps at the police station after he is arrested that he is a patsy. 
Why does he say I'm a patsy in that? Because he is this committed leftist communist. And the perfect thing to say is they've set me up because he's going to play it out all the way. He doesn't know Jack Ruby's going to shoot him on Sunday. He's pulled it off. He's killed the president. And now he's going to get a good lawyer. The spotlight was on him. And all those people in the past who thought he was a loser, they dismissed him, they fired him, they pushed him aside, they would take notice. They would know his name. The night before the assassination, he was in bed with his wife. Marina puts her hand on his leg and he brushes it off. What happened? Oswald wasn't interested in sex. As a matter of fact, they hadn't had much sex, according to Marina, in the tumultuous months in New Orleans and that. He had been distant from her because they had problems in that marriage. And so the key for Oswald was whether she could commit to him again. The girl who was 19 years old in Russia, in Minsk, who was so Google-eyed about him and wanted to be with him and thought of him as heroic, she now viewed him as somebody who beat her who was unable to take care of her and their daughter. They're having the second daughter coming along the way. She didn't trust him anymore. Could he win her respect back? Could he win her love back? Would she give him another chance? That might have spared the president's life. Oswald wakes up early the next morning, retrieves his Italian rifle from the garage, and gets a ride to work from his neighbor. Because he doesn't drive. Oswald never learned to drive. There's still people like that? Yeah, there are a few. They're the dangerous ones. Before going to work, Oswald left his wedding ring and all his life savings in cash on his wife's nightstand. He wasn't somebody who took off his wedding ring at night and put it on the next day. According to Marina, he had never taken it off before. Oswald gets a ride. His friend says, what do you got there? Oh, these are some curtain rods. Work is uneventful, except, of course, that JFK is in town. Everyone leaves work at lunch to go see the president. Some workers hang out on the fifth floor looking out the window. The others are waiting on the street. What happened? At noon, they break for lunch. So they all go down. And one of them, as a matter of fact, is holding the freight elevator with a large wooden front, and it's quite large. And they yell out, Lee, you're coming. And he said, no, I'll be down. So they all leave at noon. One of them comes back, they left something, and then that person leaves. So Oswald's on his own a few minutes after 12. He sets up a sniper's nest in the window that overlooks the roadway. Sniper's nest is an area in which you're going to try to shoot somebody, meaning the place where you want to place your gun and not be seen by the adjoining buildings to the left of the Texas School Book Depository as the car turned around the corner off of Main Street and headed up toward the depository, many people think, oh, that's the shot to take. Why isn't he taking that? Because that's the shot that exposes him to everybody around him. So instead, he has set up what I call a sniper's nest with a position of books so he can rest the rifle, he can sit on a box, and he can have a view of the president's car as it moves away now. I'm convinced of this from the Lee Oswald that I came to understand. It's not a suicide mission. He doesn't intend to do it to get killed. He doesn't want to be shot in the scene. He doesn't want to be turned in. He doesn't want to be arrested. He has some idea for an escape. So if other workers were on the floor, he's not going to take the gun out. He's going to try to find another place to do the shooting. If he can't pull the assassination off that day, doing it on his own, he's going to bring the rifle back out to where it was the day before at Marina's house and leave it there. 
the assassination is only going to happen if he finds the time to do it alone. Three African-American co-workers who were on the sixth floor with him half an hour before, they come back upstairs to watch the motorcade, but they go to the fifth floor. They're right underneath him when he's firing after. They don't know it's him, but they hear the sounds of the rifle right above them. They hear the bullets dropping on the floor. They are the greatest ear witnesses to the assassination, and their testimony was not given the credit it was due in 1963 because I think they were three black witnesses. Oswald fires three shots with his rifle. In eight and a half seconds. And everyone should remember, the clock starts running when the first shot is fired. Abraham Zapruder takes his Kodak silent 8mm movie camera to Dealey Plaza to record the JFK visit. He runs the camera during the assassination. It's remarkable that we have a live video feed of the bullets striking the president. So the amateur film, the Zapruder film, is the time clock for the assassination, 18 frames per second. The first shot comes around frames 160 to 162. There's a range because all we know is the reactions of people that you see on the film, a little girl running Rosemary Willis, the stop. Secret Service agents right stop and turn back up toward the direction of where the shot was fired toward Oswald. That first shot starts the clock running. The assassination clock, Oswald misses on that shot, doesn't just miss the president, misses the car entirely. The limousine is not hit by an extra bullet. Nobody on the side standing on either side of the roadway, and there's a crowd there, is hit by the bullet. Nobody ducks, screams, or whatever else. What happened to that bullet? That bullet gets deflected either through a tree, hits a curbstone, wounds a bystander, James Take, just bleeding a little bit on the cheek. So that starts the clock running. Oswald has now three and a half seconds to operate the bolt, put it back, aim, takes the next shot, wounds the president, high neck shoulder area. That's the bullet that then comes out the president's neck, doesn't hit any bone. Kennedy lives through that shot. That's the bullet that goes into Conley, the governor, who testifies as follows. I heard the first shot. I'm a hunter. I knew what that was. I knew it's a bad sound. I'm going to turn around and see if he is hit. I'm paraphrasing a little bit for the way that Conley said that. He's holding his Stetson hat. The bullet that goes out of Kennedy's neck is tumbling, goes into Conley, hits his rib, flattens down a little bit, comes out into his hand, into the wrist, at 900 feet a second, approximately, enough to shatter the bone on the wrist, but not damage the bullet. His hat comes up, he's holding it, it's a reflexive action, and it plops right in a straight line into his thigh. That's the second shot. Meanwhile, Oswald operates the bolt again, re-aims, and he has full five seconds. The longest time between the shots, and what is the car doing? This is the key to the assassination. It's just frustrating because the assassination at this point is so preventable. All the driver of the car has to do, the oldest member of the security detail, William Greer, 52 years old, is speed out of Dealey Plaza. Two shots have been fired. President's been hit. There's chaos breaking out. Hit the gas. What's he doing? He's looking at JFK. He's turned around to see what's happening in the back of the car. And that's when the headshot takes place. Kennedy's in a back brace. His head rolled a little bit to the left. He's been wounded from this shot. Jackie, 
if you look at the film, is pressing on. He's had this neurological response. His arms have come up in response to that bullet that doesn't hit any bone, but caused this, what they call a Thornburg response. His arms flex up. Jackie's pushing down on the left elbow, and it's not coming down. Oswald gets the straight-on shot, full five seconds, aims, looks like it's 25 yards away through the scope, the four-power scope, shoots, almost misses. Hits Kennedy up here, high right rear portion of the head, inch and a quarter higher, misses entirely. But that shot blows out the right front of the president's head. The first time I saw the Zapruder film, 1975, Geraldo Rivera showed it for the first time. I had this same reaction I think most Americans had. It looks like Kennedy shot from the front. I've seen enough movies to know that you shoot somebody and they fall over the opposite direction. So you look at that film in real time and it looks like Kennedy's head goes violently back into the left. Had it be shot from the grassy knoll? No question about it. Only when you slow the film up, you see it frame by frame. The frame before the headshot, 312 is when the bullet hits. Kennedy actually moves two to two and a half inches further away from the back seat. That's the impact of the bullet. Frame 313 is when it blows out the front of the head an 18th of a second later. And there is this mist of brain matter and blood. A third of the brain is blown out. The Dallas police on motorcycles who were on the rear of the car, they got splattered with blood. That means a front shot. Guess what? When you go through this film frame by frame, the two motorcycle policemen, especially the one on the right, they drive right into the mist and blood that's coming out of Kennedy's wound. So there's no mystery to it. It's gory. It's terrible to talk about. I can't imagine the horror to a young wife of having your husband's head blow up in front of you and the ride to Parkland to this hospital at 80 and 90 miles an hour on the freeway with a Secret Service agent who's in your protection detail hanging onto the rear of the car and she's cradling her husband's head this entire time. And you talk about PTSD or being left with it. And then you have to be strong for the rest of the country and for your children and to show you're stoic. And you have to stand there while the president's being buried a few days later. She was a remarkable woman for that. Most murders are not videotaped. This is an extraordinary piece of evidence as to what happened. Indispensable. Without it, we'd have no answers in this case. The Zapruder film used to be used by conspiracy theorists all the time to say, oh, there's a conspiracy. It's a front shot. Of it. I was the first person to really use it in detail. The Warren Commission didn't even use it because they didn't have the ability to do the digitizing of the film and see it in the clarity that could be seen by the time I was doing the research on this book. I'm the first writer who used it to say that film is incredibly important and actually proves that the only shooter who hit anyone in Dealey Plaza that day was shooting from behind the president in this general vicinity of where Oswald was left a half an hour before by his co-workers. Without that film, we'd be left with just guesswork. We would be left with conflicting evidence from the crowd. People would say, oh, I think I heard the uh, shot from the front. I think I heard it from the grassy knoll. I heard four shots. I heard six shots. I heard two shots. We'd have no idea what happened. Let's go back to the Texas School Book Depository. Oswald's just fired three shots. What did he do with the rifle? What other physical evidence did the police find in the depository that assisted the murder investigation? He does what he has to do with the weapon, which is to get rid of it. The same thing happens, by the way, 
1968 when James Earl Ray kills Martin Luther King with a rifle and leaves the flop house from where he just shot King, he throws the weapon aside in a doorway because they know both of them instinctively, if they're caught with the rifle, game over, that's it. <laughs> There's no chance of walking out from an assassination scene with a rifle and trying to explain it away. So he has to toss the rifle there. Conspiracy theorists say, well, why would he leave the rifle on the sixth floor? The answer to that is, where else is he going to take it? He doesn't have a confederate. He doesn't have another member of the conspiracy to hand it off to, or otherwise he would have done that. So he puts the rifle down. That rifle is tied ballistically to the fragments that are left from Kennedy's headshot and to the bullet that went through Kennedy's neck and into Connolly to the exclusion of any other gun in the world. And Oswald's palm print is on it, his fingerprint is on it. It's on the boxes all around the sniper's nest. Now, I'm not persuaded by the fingerprints on the boxes that create the sniper's nest because Oswald worked there. Yes, it's his gun, so it's possible that he touched it the day before and that the real assassin used gloves that day, so only Oswald's prints would be found on it. You know, he was given a paraffin test after he was arrested, and people say, oh, that's interesting. He tested negative for that, which means he didn't fire a gun. First of all, Dallas was one of the few police jurisdictions in the country in 1963 still doing a paraffin test. They were notoriously unreliable. You get a fake positive result if you used a certain type of cologne or you had to touch mint or other material during the day. And Oswald had actually tested negative on the cheek, but positive on his hands. People forget that. So they say, oh, he was negative on his cheek. CBS did reconstructions of the testing. They took the Carcano rifle that Oswald used and they had shooters operate it as a shooter would have to with the bolt and firing the gun. And they never test positive one time on their cheek for a paraffin test. Oswald said that he was eating in the lunchroom when the president's motorcade rode by. Lee Harvey Oswald was obsessed with politics. The last thing he would do is sit in the lunchroom while the president was going by. After JFK is shot, Oswald hides the rifle, walks down the stairs, where he bumps into a police officer who, hearing the shot, ran into the building. The cop says, halt. And then Oswald's boss is there and explains that Oswald works there. And then they take off to a higher floor. Oswald ducks into the lunchroom and buys a Coke and then heads for the exit of the building where he sees Robert McNeil from the McNeil-Lair Report, who was then just a junior reporter. McNeil tells Oswald that the president has just been shot and asks him where he can make a phone call. Oswald points to the lunchroom and exits the building. What happened? Oswald's very smart. Not only does he know he has to get rid of the gun, that's common sense. But he can't just look nervous, sweating. He's got a Coca-Cola. If there was a plot involving a conspiracy to kill the president, and Oswald was involved, without any question, he would have been dead at Dealey Plaza. That cop who ran into him would have been a hero eventually for shooting the assassin who's tied to that gun that killed the president. Some conspiracy believers say, well, Oswald gave them the slip gave the conspirators a slip by going out the front door, by walking into a taxi. Oswald had never taken a taxi. Marina says she never knew that he took a taxi in his life while they were together. Nobody ever remembers him taking one because they're expensive by his standards. He doesn't have much money, but he was in a rush. He was in a rush to get back to his boarding house because he had things to get like his pistol. 
but the traffic was terrible. It was a standstill. The motorcade's in town, so he gets off that to get on a regular bus. He knows how to do the bus route, and that heads back to where he needs to get to. Oswald gets out of the taxi and gets on a city bus and asks for a transfer. The transfer ticket is found in his pocket after he is arrested later. Oswald gets on the bus, and he walks past his old landlady who recognizes him. She despises him because Oswald bolted without paying his rent. It's incredible in life how many people you see in everyday life without realizing it. A witness to the shooting of JFK gave the police a description of Oswald. They put out an all-points bulletin to look out for a white male in his mid-20s, brown hair, with Oswald's approximate height and weight. Police officer J.D. Tibbet spots Oswald while driving his police car, slows down, and asks Oswald to approach the vehicle. What happened? That police officer, J.D. Tibbet, gets out of the car and starts to walk toward Oswald. Oswald whips out the revolver and empties it into Tippett in front of literally a dozen witnesses. More witnesses than you can shake a stick at. Watch Oswald shoot Tippett. Tippett was not the only Dallas police officer that stopped someone in the 40 minutes after the assassination. There were several others who, based upon that generic description, which had been given by a construction worker at the scene of the assassination, Brennan, saw someone that fit that general description who somehow seemed a little suspicious, walking too fast, maybe looking for cover, and they stopped them as well. None of them radioed in to headquarters, which you're supposed to do if you think you have the suspect. Tippett didn't do that. He also did not pull his gun out. So he didn't think he was in danger in any way. So Tippett walks out of the car. The president's just been assassinated a little while before. You could be stopping somebody suspicious, but the gun is not pulled out of your holster. So he is surprised by Oswald, clearly, in that moment when Oswald kills him. One of the parts of history on this that I find so personally irritating is that in the conspiracy view of the world, they at first try to ignore Tippett or they turn it around so they say, you know what? Tippett must be part of the conspiracy. He was out there to kill Oswald. Oswald knew this was the conspiracy about to kill him, so he kills him first. So not only is Tippett dead, he had a wife, He's the forgotten victim in this case. Everybody talks about the president. They forget that a policeman was killed that day. He just was the smart cop stopping somebody who fit the description, who did the wrong thing, which was not take enough of a precaution when he got out of the car that day. He had stopped the right guy. It's, to me, the ultimate evidence, ballistically tied to that revolver, and with the eyewitnesses who saw him, you have all the evidence there of guilt, of something. He's run away from the assassination scene. He's the only one of the employees at the entire Texas School Book Depository who left. The only one. He said, I heard the president was killed, so I figured we had the rest of the day off. He's out shooting a policeman on his way to go somewhere else. If you want to think he just brought the rifle in so a world-class assassin could use it, or he knew what was taking place, he's involved in the murder of the president. And the most irritating thing for me, and I still can get exercised about this 30 years later, are people that absolve him of any guilt at all. But people want to say he's just an innocent person. He's been set up by these dark diabolical forces. And I say, this person has blood on his hands. 
Now you want to determine the extent of it? Let's do that. He scurries toward a movie theater. He doesn't know he's going to a movie theater. He scurries to get away. His plan's been thrown off. Wherever he was going, he's getting away now. What he doesn't know is somebody's following him. Really one key guy who sees him going to the movie theater, following him at some distance, not right on top of him because he was smart. Oswald slipped into the movie theater, the Texas theater that's playing in this John Wayne movie, and the person selling tickets at the little stall in the front didn't see him. He got in without her noticing him. Cops come into the movie theater, turn on the lights. An officer approaches Oswald, and Oswald hits him, and then the cop punches him back. Oswald says, I give up. They search him, and they find a revolver used to kill Tibbet a few minutes before. Had to be a bad moment for him. Oswald says, I'm not resisting. Don't hit me. They asked him, why are you carrying this gun? Well, I like guns. What do you make of that whole scene? There's a question as to whether Oswald tried to fire the pistol again inside the theater. But the one thing that Oswald did when he gives up, and he does that very quickly, again, it goes back to the idea that this is not a suicide mission. It's not death by cop. He's not going to have a shootout in the theater so that they can shoot him on the spot, and that's the end of it. He intends to live. They take him back to the police station. The cops ask him a bunch of questions. What does he say? He's not very talkative in the beginning. They can't get much out of him at all. He's smart enough to ask for an attorney. He wants a guy, John Apt, A-B-T, who was a pretty prominent attorney up in New York who had been an attorney for the Communist Party. He complained about police brutality in the sense that he had been punched and hit before, and he told that to a reporter later when he comes out. But he refused to admit anything. He didn't admit to shooting the police officer. He was typical Oswald, obfuscation, confusion, and denial. Thanks, Gerald. This ends the first of this two-part series on the JFK assassination. Next week, we will hear from Gerald about the events at Parkland Hospital JFK's autopsy, Jack Ruby's murder of Oswald, the KGB's file on Oswald, and the role of the mob in the conspiracy. I can't wait. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast topic was Napoleon, military genius, despot, and lover. Our first speaker was David Bell, who's professor of history at Princeton and the author of Napoleon, a very short introduction. David spoke about the continuing relevance of Napoleon and how we shaped Europe, its institutions, and modern warfare. The movie Napoleon, directed by Ridley Scott, was recently released. I interviewed Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next film critic, to evaluate whether our audience should make the investment to watch this two-hour and 38-minute epic. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.